Welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 66. And today uh, we're not talking about the movie we said we were going to talk about last time because that was a long time ago at this point. And that movie fucking sucked. Yeah, it was, wasn't great. Um, so instead, since uh, Oscar nominations were announced not long ago, we're going to talk about Nomadland, which was uh, nominated for Best Picture and Best Actress and all sorts of stuff. Best Director, I, I think. Um and the movie that sucked was Midnight Sky yeah. by George Clooney. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I don't know. I, I've seen worse, but also it. Uh, we don't. We don't need to cover it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. It's George Clooney with a beard being very sick. In the yep. cold. With an imaginary child. Um, you know what I? Th- I don't know if you'll remember this as well as I do because I think I'm the one that suggested it. Do, do you remember? I, when we were talking about maybe the conjuring, I told you to listen to a uh, podcast on the, uh, called Spooked, mm-hmm. and there was this farmer talking about a little girl. Yeah, on his pain pills, and oh, it kind of yeah. reminded you of that Midnight Sky felt like that story. It's like this little girl in her little dress, and it turns out it's this like illusion. Uh, it felt strangely similar, um, but but. You know, Midnight Sky was consciously fiction, and that podcast dude was like talking about it like it was real. Uh, so it wasn't that bad, but uh, yeah, just kind of unremarkable. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Just kind of, uh, kind of pedestrian as far as that kind of story goes. Um, yeah. And the big twist is really not very effective at all. Um, yeah, it yeah. hits you like a, a wet noodle, right? Doesn't really do that. <laughs> Um, yeah. So we're talking about Nomadland, directed by Chloe Zhao, based on the book by Jessica Bruder, Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century. And uh, it's a movie that, to me, upon watching it, had a lot of parallels. Um, well, I don't know if they're direct parallels, but connections to Into the Wild. Um, because yeah. it's talking about the, the nomad people. So you had the slabs in Into the Wild and... And this you have, um, oh, I forget the name of the, the gathering in Arizona. Oh, I can't remember what they called it either. Um, you can tell we've really done our work. Uh, Desert Rendezvous. Oh, never mind. That's just the, <laughs> that's just the name. Anyway, doesn't really matter. Uh, they So this film focuses mainly on the people that, that do a lot of uh, van living, van dwellers, they call themselves. Um, in Arizona and different places, and it's a pretty good portrait of the kind of people that get kind of swept to the side in America. Um, this is this movie takes place uh, around the time or just after the financial collapse in '08, um, so it's a lot of fallout from that and uh, a lot of uh, Francis McDormand's character's anguish comes from this town in Nevada that was the home of a gypsum mine and plant shutting down and it pretty much puts the town under in a, a pretty stark reflection of or not reflection but stark kind of reenactment of coal mining towns um in other places yeah and and the way i understand it is that fern is a believable character but not based on a real person that's my understanding too she's sort of like an, an amalgamation uh, that's meant to get us through this story in a way that can be legible to people watching a movie as opposed to reading a book. 
I, I, I kind of like that style. Um, when you have like a real sort of context, but then the particulars of the characters are fiction to, to tell the best story you can. Um, when, when, when you're dealing with a, uh, you know, a medium like a film, I, I'm thinking like uh, Moneyball. Have you ever seen the, the adaptation of yeah. Moneyball? It's like, you know, again, based on this sort of journalistic book, but the, the movie is pretty successful because it creates this sort of, um, I mean, Billy Bean, Brad Pitt's character is real, but then Jonah Hill's character is kind of this combination of several different people. But it, it's when you're making a fictional sort of entertaining film, you want to, you want to create the characters that are most compelling, not necessarily the most realistic. Um, and I think nomad land does a, a good job of that because there's nothing sensationalized about Fern, uh, but she is compelling and, and you want, you want to know about her despite, even despite the knowledge that she's not a real character or not a real person. Yeah. And the movie sort of, like you're saying it's successful in doing that, but it's also successful in uh, succeeding without very many characters or at least not very many major characters there's fern there's david there's swanky and then a, a, a few other people um and then a bunch of sort of extras um but the the story is hangs together pretty coherently and uh, the use of people that are not actors even though it is pretty evident when it's someone who's not an actor i think it's done uh, sort of naturalistically enough that it, it comes off really well as opposed to being awkward or stilted in some kind of way yeah yeah and i was reading one review who, who made this that, that made this point i thought it was a good point that part of what is good about francis mcdormand's performance is her ability to listen to non-actors realistically and and in a way that encourages a kind of authentic uh back and forth not not like a documentary uh, interview, but a, a real conversation. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because those were the scenes that I, I think I noticed most, which is exactly what you're saying of a, a non-actor character talking to Fern about whatever it may be. And Francis McDormand just sits there and nods or smiles and it interacts with them as you would with someone who's talking to you. Um, but doesn't try to steal the scene or be like super dramatic. It's just like a woman listening to another woman's story. Yeah. Um, and it also makes me think of uh, a scene that's sort of similar to that is when she gets to Fern gets to the Amazon warehouse and they're having their team meeting before they go in to start the day. Uh, and, and that was such a realistic scene that it almost gave me like, PTSD flashbacks of working in retail situations or something where you have team meetings and they come together and they say, let's go out there and be the best that we can be for, you know, insert company name. Yeah. It, it made me think as I was watching that the performance was so good. It made me think that the director probably, 
uh, it's my theory at least, that uh, she probably told the people that they were like filming some sort of like instructional video or something, you know, to justify the camera's presence as opposed to like we're filming a dramatic narrative, uh, you know, because I feel like that would uh, a non-actor maybe hears that and, and then clams up and or tries to do something weird. Um, and so it, it made me think that maybe they they came up with some sort of story for like why the camera was there that invited a more uh, natural delivery of that uh, corporate speech. Yeah, can you imagine uh, being like, okay, so the scene is her character's life has just completely fallen to shit and everything's <laughs> horrible and uh, you're just some guy talking to her in a laundromat, so let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you don't, you don't want to give too much away if you're the director there uh, to your non-actors because y- you want them to think that, that, uh, that they are themselves, um, not a character. I, you know, counterintuitively. Yeah. Even though uh, you have, um, I'm thinking it's, Bob, right? Bob is the guy. Yeah, Bob, the, Bob the guy that, that organizes all the, the van dwellers into these gatherings and is a big advocate of it and, and all those kinds of things. He is such a, a real life character in the sense of being like, oh, what a character, that guy, that yeah. he just gets to come in and be himself and it comes off really well, I think. Yeah, he and he's the kind of uh, talker that, that uh, you know, I, again, having these types of thoughts I had with that Amazon speech scene, I did not have those thoughts. I remember thinking like, Oh, this is a guy who's like good enough at making a presentation that the director could probably approach him and be like, okay, just do your, do your thing, do your shtick. And, and he would kind of know how to proceed. Yeah. And that's what he does. Yeah. So in a movie that has ostensibly three characters in it, um, it's really highly emotionally effective and tells a pretty sweeping kind of story. If you think about the distance covered by Fern uh, in in her travels, right? It starts in Nevada and she's in Arizona and then South Dakota and it's just, all, you know, around the entire country. Um, and, you know, I think that's something that we tend to think of as, telling a, a truly American story is one that moves through a lot of different places or a road story, that kind of thing. And so yeah. This is a, and that's something we've talked about a lot on this podcast. And yeah. I think it's probably, probably what maybe, uh, sent up a red flag when you saw this to like suggest it for the podcast. Cause it is, there is something kind of typically American. And I think that is very much conscious in the director's mind as she, you know, as she tells the story. Yeah. And just the centrality of the, the road trip movie and how this, how no man land inverts that in a lot of ways. And so this is a road trip that is not for any positive reason. This is a sort of a survival road trip. Whereas, well, well, there's, 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 I think there's some ambivalence about that. Uh, that was a little bit frustrating watching, but I think intentional on the director's part. Um, I, I I came across a review in the New York Times by A.O. Scott, and I think he really sort of 
hits the nail on the head. He says, Nomadland is patient, compassionate, and open, motivated by an impulse to wander and observe rather than to judge or explain. I think that's very accurate. You kind of are expecting there to be some sort of prescriptive message in this film, like a sort of message about how Fern ought to be or, or by Fern's actions, we learn how we ought to be, but, but it's really not. It's, it's really a, a sort of descriptive message about kind of how Americans react to trauma, both like economic trauma and personal, emotional, relational trauma. Um, and and I think A.O. Scott's right that it's it's about this movie definitely wants to wander and observe and not judge or explain that, you know, those themes I'm talking about. Yeah. And I, I was going to bring something similar up later in talking about the, the ending, um, which it, it's it's sort of drawn out and it has some some beautiful shots that are like you're saying, they don't put any sort of, of sort of judgment or critical input into to what's happening but you do have uh bob giving fern his his sort of final um speech i guess of talking about his son uh who had died and and uh, the the sort of ethos of these van dwellers is you don't say goodbye you just say i'll see you down the road and you end up with this sort of i mean that's just kind of pablum right it feels kind of meaningless to me in a way um, yeah i'm dude i'm right there with you that that shit pissed me off because it, it, it's about it, it, it's an unwillingness we were just talking before we started recording about uh norman o'brown life against death and in norman o'brown's words he would say um you know that is the the habit saying uh see you down the road that is a habit of a of a of a person who is unwilling to die um, or, or an ego that is unwilling to die. Um, and, and it's like, you won't see them down the road. And, but, but again, it's not the movie's fault. The movie is describing, it's just like showing. And I think accurately kind of how a lot of people think. And, and I feel like that phrase, see you down the road is really, kind of at the heart of the philosophy that the film exposes uh, and, and a kind of bankrupt philosophy. Um, you know, as long as you can keep moving, you never have to acknowledge reality. And the ultimate reality is that you will die and you will not see the people you know and love again at some point. Which is funny because earlier in the film with Swanky, that's, that's more or less her entire character arc is she's older. She's been doing this for a long time, but now she has cancer and she's not going to bother with treatment or anything. She's just going to let it kind of take her and she's going to go off to Alaska one last time. And so with that, you have this weird kind of acceptance, but then the movie more or less undercuts it with this whole idea of, you know, see you down the road and, it'll be okay. And you know, it's, it's, there's no, because it's so sort of observational, there's no, there's no 
comfort, but also there's no any sort of of final conclusion. You know, it's it, this is one of those films that ends, and you're like, okay, well, what you know, what just happened? What does this mean? Like, what what, what kind of message am I supposed to take away? And usually, I'm a big fan of that. You know, it leaves room for interpretation and all that. But with this, it just feels like there's just kind of a void there. It's just sort of here's well, the story that occurred, and now it's over. I I felt that way initially, and I was frustrated by it. And I was doing the dishes yesterday, <laughs> and I was like so frustrated by it. I just kept thinking about it, and the more I thought about it, the more I the the more the ending reminded me of the ending of Leave No Trace, which we talked about on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you if you recall, Ben Foster's character just sort of you know, leaves this, this basically ideal community kind of hippie community, um, which his daughter is, it's suggested is going to remain a part of. And he hits the road. You know, he's a, a soldier with uh, post-traumatic stress. He hits the road and basically just disappears off into the forest. And I feel like Fern's rejection of this, somewhat ideal uh situation with uh david strathern's character and his family you know she's got this like guest house open invitation to this man that clearly cares for her and a family that seems open and and uh affectionate and her rejection of that feels like the 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 same rejection that ben foster's character makes uh, that whatever trauma she's experienced has basically made her incapable of rooting herself to any, to anything that she used to be rooted to what's um, and, and so you, you might conclude that the director wants us to see that like Fern's sister says, yes, this is a quintessentially American tradition much like the pioneers uh the nomads are like the pioneers but that that is not necessarily a good thing (laughs) um that that maybe there is something uh quintessentially american about uh the trauma inspired refusal to be rooted uh again this is something we've talked about many times in many different iterations on this podcast, but I, I feel like it's in leave no trace and in no man land, it's maybe at its most like poignant iteration. It's, it's like done in a very sad way. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. And, and so it, well, it, I'm trying to think of like how to, how to, reconcile these two films uh, just because the motivations of the characters are so different so in leave no trace you know you have this guy who basically can't live within uh what we would think of as normal quote-unquote society or even in the case in the film of the the sort of commune that is far enough removed that his daughter can feel comfortable but he still can't exist around these people um, and then in Nomadland, she she turns that down, which is a, I guess a brave rejection of that kind of living. But then that just. But then she goes and works at Amazon. 
Yeah, that's what I was saying. And then it, it just it starts that cycle over again. Now she's back, you know, shitting in a bucket in the van, which is, you know, no, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But where does it go? Is she sort of dedicated to being like swanky? And it's like, okay, now I live in my van until something ends up killing me and then I'll be remembered and, you know, no one's going to say goodbye. They'll just see me down the road. Yeah, you can't. Uh, there's a there's a hypocrisy sort of at the heart of not the film, but the character of Fern, where it's like you can't be nostalgic for this sort of um, industrial community that's collapsed and extol the virtues of the nomadic way of life, which is a rejection of the kind of ethos of corporate community. Um, and if there's a, if there's an unconscious sort of hypocrisy to the character that to me, that's it. It's like, she kind of, it seems like she's kind of idealizing her past. Um, but at the same time, idealizing, or at the very least privileging this sort of kind of, kind of, uh, sketchy conception of freedom that she associates with the nomad life. Uh, Like you can't have both at the same time. And there's also um, this thing in the film that it's not uncommon and it makes a lot of sense when you think about the American psyche as it regards work and careers and stuff like that. But a lot of the first part of the the movie is Fern trying to find work somewhere and she doesn't really care where and her whole thing is I just want to work, right? You know, I I have some experience, but mostly, you know, I'm able-bodied. I just want the job. And you see her moving through work at an Amazon warehouse at a beetroot processing farm or whatever it was at um, wall drug running deep fryers and stuff like that. Um and you meet another character at one point who was talking about how she worked her entire life and couldn't live on the the payments and, and stuff like that, which is you know becoming more and more common. But that that idea that it, it that sort of work uh, or that work ethic, I guess, is is valorized even though it gets these people nowhere. And the problem that isn't ever addressed because again the movie's not trying to really solve any of these problems. Um, is that that kind of work, there's not a lot of, well, for one, there's not a lot of pay in it, but there's not a lot of dignity in it. And the problem is not the people doing the work. The problem is the type of work and how the work is compensated and those kinds of things. Um, yeah. So that's something. Well, that, that's a, that's another thing I noticed, uh, you know, related to that is that Fern had, gets all sort of morally um, indignant about, I, I don't know, some sort of, uh, family relation, maybe her brother-in-law or something like that. Uh, he's some sort of real estate guy. And it's implied that he's in some way kind of predatory. Um, and yet it, it seems like she has no problem working for Amazon. And, and I'm not saying like, obviously she's doing it because she, she needs to work, but like she utterly rejects this family and and then later David's family, uh, who you know probably have connections that could get her steady employment, um, and she she 
rejects those opportunities um, seemingly from a moral position and then you know is happy when the Amazon season comes around um, our, our predatory uh, you know real estate investors doing more harm to the country than Jeff Bezos economically I, I don't know but it, it it goes unaddressed it seems to me yeah and it's that's another kind of connection to uh, into the wild that I was thinking about this is the in some ways it's the wrong kind of American individualism um, kind of presenting that where it's it's like you're saying it's not very critical but it knows or it thinks it knows what's it what it's against and what it's for but then when you look at them together and kind of squint a little bit they end up being very similar yeah uh the point i was making about her working at amazon is very similar to a point i'm sure we made in our into the wild episode about how chris mccandless gives away twenty four thousand dollars and then goes and gets a job at burger king yeah it's like, I mean, I don't understand. Maybe, maybe if you're just coming at it from a, I have to be the one that earns the money, but but that's a pretty narrow critique. You know, if if, if you're critiquing society, as Eddie Vedder says, uh, it seems like it would extend to, like you said, like the types of work available, not just like, did I earn the money myself? Because then you're then the critique is, becomes just a sort of libertarian thing as opposed to a kind of a radical or or even revolutionary sort of perspective. It's it's just very limited to say it is it is right to make money yourself uh, and ignore the types of work being done to make the money. Yes, and that's why I think the strongest parts of the movie um, and one of the strongest messages I think you can uh, reiterate to, especially Americans in general, is this idea that you get from, I think I mentioned it before, the, the lady that Fern's talking to at one point that says, you know, I worked my entire life and then when I got too old and had to retire, I was unable to support myself, even though I had done so much and contributed so much both financially and you know taxes and and retirement payments and social security payments and all this sort of crap and spiritually of just giving yourself to a job however many hours a week for years and years of your life um and then to have kind of nothing to show for it at the end or to have to scrape to get by and survive and all this sorts of stuff um you know, that's that's when I think the film is, is kind of at its strongest. Um, but I think the message a lot of people take away is just, well, if these people just had better work or, you know, a different kind, which is not necessarily wrong, but there's still that core of it of, of like, oh, well, surely work is the answer. <laughs> like somehow yeah. it has to be the answer. Man, that's that's weirdly similar to the to the. Uh ideas associated with uh office space curtis white's critique of office space how the movie's like first half starts with the uh sort of suggestion that corporate work is bullshit and should not be engaged in and then there's that bitch ass backpedal 
in the middle where they sort of change the conditions where it's like what Peter, the main character is really upset about is that there's not profit sharing within in a tech and that if, if there were and, and Peter had more motivation, it would be worth doing, which is a completely different proposition than work is bullshit. Yes. Uh, which, you know, like you're saying, we made this point before of comparing that to uh, workaholics, which starts off with the premise that work is bullshit and meaningless. Um, yeah. And just the, even just the title there, like the, the title workaholics, and then you watch three episodes and it's like the show really has nothing to do with employment uh, and is and is a pretty good fuck you to uh to the notion of workaholism um yeah um it it makes me think i just i just recently heard there's a a relatively new book i believe it's called work won't love you back by sarah uh, jaffe have you heard of this i I listened to an interview with her on a podcast she's very not only uh kind of brilliant in what she's saying but when she was just talking, she's pretty funny as well. So I appreciated that. Yeah. I think I saw her on uh, democracy. Now it's called work. Won't love you back. How de- devotion to our jobs. Keep keeps us exploited, exhausted and alone. Um, and, and just that title, you know, sounds kind of, kind of cute or whatever, but it's also, I think very to the point. Because you think about how many Americans, if asked, do you love your job, say yes. And it's like, if you if you change that question to, does your job love you, it quickly becomes absurd. And you realize, not only can your job not love you, you can't really love your job. It doesn't really make sense. Um, anyway, I, I haven't read that book, but I saw an interview with the, with the author and uh, uh, sounded like a, a book I could trust. Yeah. It's just that, that the whole idea of, of having this purely transactional thing in which you are trading literal minutes, seconds off of your life for, you know, some numbers, uh, that you're going to then exchange for like food and shelter <laughs> that that there can be anything like love in that transaction um, is is very interesting, especially when but, you're. But but we're conditioned like like you see in Nomadland, Fern is conditioned when she's looking for work. You know, she's like, I need work, I yeah. want to work. But but it again, it has to do with that that uh, sort of American impulse to to have to keep moving. Um, and it's like if we're not working or on our way somewhere, we don't know what the fuck to do with ourselves. The second she has this opportunity to like root herself in this family, she freaks out. She can't do it. Um, and, and that I think, uh, the film says is a quintessentially or uniquely American tradition and is maybe what the pioneers were engaging in as well. Yes, they were, you know, trying to settle a home, but it it was definitely more about the chase than the the home. Yeah, and just uh, just that that scene's so heart wrenching of just like, oh no, I want to work. 
I need to work and, and, and have it ultimately be so, you know, the, the work itself being kind of hollow, meaningless, you know, sorting, you know, people's, uh, as of the news story from back at the beginning of COVID, their sex dildos to be shipped to different <laughs> parts of, of the country. Yeah. Yeah. And have that be, uh, you know, the, the kind of the sum total of this person's value, right. And the idea that once you're, if you're not within the bounds of what's considered working age, you, your value within the society is greatly diminished. So if you're, you know, a teenager that is too young to work or a child that can't work or an elderly person who can't work, uh, you then become the opposite of a productive citizen, which is yeah, your, your job is to consume. Yeah. Uh, which your job is always to consume, right? In in combination with whatever it is that you're doing to, you know, feed yourself and your children and keep a roof over your head. But then when that becomes your only thing, that's when people start to like get a little, they start to look at you a little bit differently. Yeah. 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 But it, it, there, there's a, there's a real sense that Americans can't sit still in nomad land. Yeah. Uh, and and there's an you know there's equal emphasis I feel like on the kind of psychological principles at play and the economic principles at play, um, and I think uh, a lot of the frustration you feel at the at the end of the movie is the kind of ambivalence on both fronts, both the personal, psychological, and uh, economic, because there's like we said, it's not prescriptive. There's no like suggestion about how we get out of this. It's just like, ultimately it's kind of like, look how sad this is. Doesn't this suck? <laughs> and that, like a, it's like a commiseration. Yeah. And th- that idea that, that Americans can't sit still, that there is definitely that part of it that is just kind of this seems to be kind of a drive that is reinforced within our culture in a lot of ways to get up and move and go places. Um, but it's also for a lot of people, not really as much of a choice. I mean, for Fern, she's moving to where the work is, right? And that makes a lot of sense. It's kind of, she's a migratory worker in a lot of ways. And I was just thinking of people, uh, lower income people who like are forced to move a lot to, you know, for whatever reason it may be. Um, like when I used to live in the apartment complex, it was, it was not, it was sort of, you know, mid range kind of apartment complex. Uh, but you would have a lot of families that would come well, families and individuals that would sort of come in and out of there and would live there for a year or live there for six months or whatever. And then they would leave and they would turn the apartment over. And it was more unusual to have someone that would live there for a long time. And that's becoming increasingly true in a lot of places where instead of permanent homes that people can't afford, it's apartment complexes that people can rent as long as they can before they have to move because prices go up or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Or, or, you know, they just have a particularly decent gig and they, you know, they work, uh, for a year doing something and then migrate like Fern's doing just in a slightly more stable way. Yeah. And I think it was, uh, this is kind of unrelated, but it just popped into my head. But so that she has to leave its empire, right? Is the name of the city in Nevada. Am I, am I yeah. Very apt. Yeah. And, uh, that's what I was going to say. There's that. And the fact that it's a gypsum factory And at the beginning, if you remember the title card, 
says that due to a a drop in demand for sheetrock and other kinds of materials like that. And if you think of 08 was the the housing boom bubble going burst and yeah. and destroying the economy and then the fact that it's basically it's materials that are used to build houses and other kinds of buildings and that goes under um it, it's just such a good representation and literally the you know showing this is american industry encapsulated this is we literally take the stuff out of the earth we process it and we use it to build new places right build new things you know whatever it may be and that's and, going and it's all connected yeah it's all connected and they pull that one string or you know the people at the top pull that one string out of fucking greed and uh you know assheadedness and then that trickles down and fern ends up working at amazon yeah yeah um yeah i i think the strangest aspect of the film is this sort of wedding of of the personal and the economic um because at some at some points in the film you're kind of it's kind of hard to tell like you know, what exactly are we supposed to feel the saddest about this sort of uh, collapse of the American empire or the personal stuff with Fern? Um, or, and are they supposed to be like metaphors for one another or separate issues informing this character? Are we supposed to think of this movie as like social critique or psychological investigation um or both i don't know um you know most movies can't pull off one of these things this one at least invites questions into both yeah um i don't know we need some sort of offshoot uh version of homo economicus (laughs) you know where homo economicus is sort of the people at the top that cause these issues. Well, what are the people below them? Uh, so I don't know. I have to think of a, a term for that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'll have to, I'll have to think on that. I'm not, I, I should be able to do this. So, uh, you know, I took a bunch of Latin, but well, um, I mean, you think of like, so a big part of that is, is like, these are people that are so rational and so like driven by self-interest and all this sort of stuff. You're talking about homo, homo economicus. Well, what are the people, the sort of sub sub homo economicus people that are driven by the same kind of rationality, but have no kind of access to the same means or the same, you know, power within the structure. I've got a perfect name for that, that group. It's called Trump supporters. <laughs> there you go. Um, <laughs> that, that was a, a sort of cynical thought I had watching Nomadland. It's like when a, when a lot of the characters are kind of romanticized, and it's like, yeah, th- this dude definitely voted for Trump. <laughs> They're all at the the bar, and the guys playing the country song. Um, that guy looks like the piano player in Hell. Oh, that he he was like a Disney character or something. <laughs> like, yeah. It was, it was weird um like a like a character from all dogs go to heaven but that less that racist. movie is like crazy dark when's the last time you watched all dogs go, go to heaven oh, i don't know probably as a kid but i remember it being like it, making me feel deeply uncomfortable and sad 
Yeah, that's me too. Um, but I think a big part of the, of Nomadland having these kinds of critiques and they're, they're, <clears throat> yeah, I, you know, we, I, I've spent a lot of time talking about things I don't like about the, the kind of messaging of the movie as I interpret it. Um, but something that we should mention is because I feel like it, it'll be the first port of call for a lot of people talking about what the movie is saying is that it's directed by someone who is not, uh, from the United States originally. Uh, so Chloe hey, Zhao, I mean, you, you don't like it. You can leave. <laughs> well, you trying to, you don't like working in Amazon. You don't like two day delivery. Uh, so you know, Chloe Zhao from, <laughs> from China. You don't like two day delivery. Oh, you think something's uh, wrong about two day delivery? Um, we're going to change like the last line of the national anthem from home of the brave to home of the two day delivery. Home, home of Amazon prime two day delivery. <laughs> uh, but so she, she came here with her parents um, in the in the eighties, which is interesting, it makes you think why they they were leaving at at the time. It might have to do with all the civil unrest in the country at the time. Uh, but they, you know, the, having this critique coming from someone who is, while she's lived in America for a very long time now, um, uh, she uh, or no, maybe I'm wrong. No, she came much later in life than I thought, right? So according to Wikipedia, she's 15 and she goes to a boarding school in the UK and then comes to college in the US. So she was, you know, a fully formed person. Um, and just seeing their critiques coming from someone who has a different kind of worldview, I think is is helpful, right? I, I by no means want to be like, well, you know, it's problematic because she doesn't understand the nuances. I think the thing is because she's an outsider, she does see the nuances when most Americans would not. Um, Absolutely. Like, so. you know, you can be too close to a thing. It's, it's you know, fish fish don't know what water is sort of thing. Um, if you haven't been swimming in it your whole life, you definitely have a better perspective on it. I, yeah, it, it, I mean, that sounds like tucker carlson's critique of ilhan omar you know uh <laughs> which was in the the most recent john oliver episode where uh, you know he's talking about how she doesn't get to be critical of the united states because the united states you know rescued her from this orphanage or whatever it's like okay just because someone you know didn't what wasn't born here doesn't mean they don't have a brain to to point out injustice in the government and, uh, and other places like it. it's just a, you know, ridiculous line of thinking. Yeah. And if anything, they might have, they might be trying to hold people in government to higher standards because supposedly you're this great savior. What the fuck are you doing? Um, and so it's, a, it's interesting to see a movie directed by, I mean, just imagine coming here, and you're, uh, you've lived your life in other countries. You come from, uh, well, this is sort of getting into stereotyping territory, but you know, you appreciate or you, you have it in your mind that elders should be appreciated. And you come to a country in which people like Fern exist, where they're getting up toward being senior citizens and they're still forced to go out and work in a warehouse or on a beet farm or whatever, or else they have, you know, they just, freeze to death in their vans like doesn't that sound like it would be just utterly insane to you if you're not coming yeah. from that kind of milieu which is a word i've never used in the wild 
and, you, and you know, you, you're coming into, you know, like you said, this is water, right? We're all like, what are you talking about? That's, you know, they should have worked harder. They should have blah, 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 blah. It's like, well, no, let's start with the fact that it's just deeply wrong and, and fucked on a lot of different levels and then try to figure out how we can solve it from there. Um, so it, yeah, it's, the, it's, the American, the American love of work is the American failure of imagination. Like people don't love their jobs. I don't care what they say. What, when they, what they mean when they say they, they love their job is that they cannot imagine doing anything else. And that's a very different thing. I just love breaking it down of like, Oh, well I love working. Why do you love working? Well, cause I love money. Oh, okay. Why do you love money? Cause I love stuff. Okay. Why do you love stuff? And it just eventually ends up with like, Oh, my life is a lie. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which, which, you know, any two year old can, can find their way to logically. Yeah. Uh, but. And that, I mean, it's, I'm just being, I'm just oversimplifying. Right. Cause like I have to work and make money and to, pay for things and there's stuff that yeah, I Yeah, but you don't have to pretend like it's a good thing yeah. and we're certainly not going to get anywhere where everyone's lying about how they're not miserable. And and what's even more depressing is not lying about mis- being miserable, but actually thinking that you're not. <laughs> yes. Um, absolutely. And that's why, you know, in the film because that that's what I mean when I say a failure of imagination. Like they literally cannot imagine doing anything else. To where that that question just seems kind of absurd to them, I would imagine. Oh man, yeah. I mean, I encountered that. I've talked about students before, but I encountered this with like things that I think about a lot, and and sometimes I forget that like other people don't think these things are important at all, and so I'll bring them up and be like, "Well, don't you think it's incredibly just annoying and shitty that no matter where you go in in cities, and especially if cities are are growing like you know auburn is and other places like that don't you think it's shitty how like everything is completely designed around the car and not only is is a lot of this stuff not welcoming to pedestrians or, or bicyclists or whatever but it's openly hostile toward them don't you think that sucks and they're like well where am i gonna park <laughs> it's like okay never mind i i forget that people don't care about <laughs> these kinds of things um, right like it it and I'm not I'm not trying to like come off holier than thou or anything. It's just most people don't give a shit. It's not something that they value because they don't. You know, if I feel like if they had a model to look at and be like, oh, you know, if a city's highly walkable or whatever, then it has these great benefits and it's nicer to look at and there's less pollution or whatever. That like maybe, but it's just not something that's. Well, the that's thing is, they don't care about it because they don't have time to learn about it. Or inclinations yeah. to learn about it because they're too busy working. Yeah, and because that's what that's what's valuable, right? What yeah. I'm talking about of just like me sitting and thinking about, you know, you can, uh, fucking urban design or whatever. Uh, that's not valuable, right? I'm not monetizing that, but going out and you know, um, doing whatever you do for ten hours a day or even longer if you have to put in overtime. That is what has value. And I am the fucking idiot because I'm, I'm not doing anything that's worth anything. Yeah. And, and which is why people have such a fucking grudge against like, uh, higher education teachers, professors, 
because they feel like, you know, they're not contributing to the productive economy. In fact, they're, they're actually, if, if they're, you know, on the left, they're actually problematizing the productive economy. So they're, so they're uh, far from, uh, supporting the economy. They're problematizing and deconstructing it. And how the fuck do these people get tenure and, you know, are make $60,000 a year or whatever it is. Um, cause I, I feel like that stereotype is pretty true, at least in the South, of like people, um, kind of begrudging higher education or like feeling like they have to ostensibly support, like theoretically support it, but, but actually being kind of skeptical of it and, and maybe unconsciously hostile to it. Yeah. Well, and again, it, depends on what kind of higher education you're talking about stem fine that's valuable go to your brand new building congratulations yeah i I guess i'm i guess i'm talking about the humanities yeah and that's where people like you you get you get paid how much to do gender studies you know that that kind of shit (laughs) Uh, you're doing critical race theory well that should be illegal um and you know it's tiring it is like not even worth talking about because it's such a fucking boring cliche at this point but the idea that 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 kind of intellectual work is not in fact work uh, even though the stem stuff the stem careers that everybody wants are the same sort of shit and don't even get me started on like the business and economic careers that's which is like way more made up than anything i've ever studied Um, dude i did i tell you that i did some uh uh editorial work like or just like copy editing work for the business and economic research center at MTSU. No, I think I'm still technically employed. I just like, haven't gotten any jobs. They haven't sent me anything in like a year, but I got it uh, just through a friend of a friend. And, uh, they'd pay me like 20 bucks an hour to, to edit these economic papers. Uh, just very light editing, not like revision, just like commas and shit. And, uh, Never have I seen such bullshit on paper than these essays that are like completely statistically driven. And it's just like, like a, like formulas and equations applied to these numbers. And it's like, if you think about the claims that these essays are making, uh, and, and businesses use these studies to like make business decisions uh, theoretically. Uh, and it's like, if you actually think about the logic, when you take into account all the sort of exceptions made in all these essays for like, Oh, well this, this business didn't respond to our inquiry and, uh, we couldn't include businesses like, you know, that closed after 6 PM. And there's, uh, there's like a, uh, list of like 30 criteria that that were not met and then they still go ahead and publish the essay uh, the statistics and it's like this is meaningless garbage uh and yet you know that's that's an essay that has way more sort of practical influence than anything you or i have ever written or or read or cited in any paper you know what i'm saying like uh, i think we talked about this one time how many how many books on climate change have been written in the last 30 years 
and things have gotten worse. And so, so like, obviously the, the humanities, the project of the humanities in terms of like eco criticism is not really tipping the scales in any meaningful way yet. Um, but like you, if you're a, a student in economics and you write this essay, you might actually impact a decision that a local business maker makes by spouting this statistical nonsense in your paper, which is depressing to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you saw what happened with the, like, this has been a while ago now, but the <clears throat> whole Reddit GameStop stock thing, right? Yeah. 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 Like that's, I don't know what could be more indicative that it's all just a fucking house of cards. Um, it, it's all just like smoke and mirrors and shadows and dust and whatever else you want to call it. Um, so if I want to fucking talk about psychoanalysis, then leave me the fuck alone. <laughs> I'm not hurting anyone. Well, it, that's what's, that's what's so, I mean, it's just infuriating. If you want to use psychoanalysis as a, as an example, you know, to have a, a culture that, that thinks psychoanalysis is irrelevant and like statistical analysis uh, of the, the minutiae of the economy. Like uh, just uh, take a second and apply the, the uh, psychoanalytical perspective to your obsession with the economy and tell me you don't come off looking like a psychopath. Uh, but but once you've categorically relegated that any any aspect of the humanities uh, to nonsense and not productive, you're you're in no danger of of having to question yourself or, or the way you live. And that's all anybody wants, really, is just do what you're doing, keep on keeping on. <laughs> Oh, we're, like, we're, we're, we're drifting. We're drifting to nihilism. Well, no, I, the that idea of like keep on keeping on. If you think about how that's sustainability, like, man. Yeah, there, <laughs> there's like a, a subculture, like a sub language within American English, at least, that's related to how much it sucks to go to work. So it's like keep on keeping on, or people would say, oh, you know, back to the salt mines. That kind of Thank thing. Thank God it's Friday. Thank God it's Friday. Yeah, God, that's a whole other thing. Um, <laughs> hump day is a thing. Um, you know, the whole discourse about Mondays driven by Garfield. <laughs> All that sort of stuff. Um, it, there's just so much of American culture just around work sucking, right? It's the, the Blink-182 lyric, work sucks, I know. That's the uh, tagline for office space work sucks and and you know how that movie ends is with peter getting a job as a construction worker i think i think uh curtis white's review ends with him saying millionaires like mike judge and jennifer aniston telling us to find happiness with a shovel is monstrous (laughs) oh man that uh I, it kind of, I don't, I, this is a half formed thought, so I can't really explain it, but it makes me think of the, the podcast that's Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen. You know what I'm talking that's about? That's a thing? Yeah, they have a podcast. 
I forget what, what it's called. Um, but it makes me think of like Bruce Springsteen's Super Bowl ad about how the middle is where you know all the good comes from, and so he has his podcast with Barack Obama. It's just there's so much in American culture, especially right now, just telling everyone, not even telling us not to panic or anything, but just being like everything is okay and it's a lot like you tell a dog everything's okay when they're being put down (laughs) oh goodness that's a that felt true and that scared me yeah that's a and that's a one of the big chapo trap house things right now is that the biden era is just it's being in hospice right it's it's that scene in a in um Oh, with the Soylent Green, you know, when you're watching the pretty colors and you're eating the flowers. Yeah. There was, you know, it's interesting you say uh, we're we're just being told everything's okay. I was listening to NPR the other day, and there's some, like, economic show. I can't remember what it's called. I think the host's name is Guy Rizdahl or something like that. Uh, And and he was basically doing just that. He was just like, hey, the stock numbers are bullshit, but... uh, You know, uh, you got to account for this and this and this. And remember, there was that bad winter storm in February. Uh, So uh, we we think everything's going to be okay. And it was like weird how explicit he was like kind of apologizing for the economy, Um, which, of course, he would never have done had Trump still been in office. Um, Not to say Trump's unfairly attacked, but just like stop bullshitting us. Um, and, and, and who's telling you that you, that that's the angle you have to take that like, Oh, things are going to be okay. Yeah. Which is, I I don't know. I I feel like you get this false dichotomy of everything is okay or everything's fucked. And there's always an extension to that of everything's fucked. What can we do about it? Right. Or like, how might we fix it? Um, but I don't know. It never goes that far. Right. I, I feel like I'm always talking to a first year writing student of like, yes. And <laughs> what, what else? Um, you know, I don't have the answers. I just know that an answer is something that should be looked for. Yeah. I, it, it sort of reminds me, I recently read Andreas Malm's most recent book, uh, how to blow up a pipeline. And he has a pretty, uh, uh, almost vitriolic critique of uh, Jonathan Franzen's kind of environmental position, mm-hmm. which is kind of stoic. Uh, if you've read the end of the the end of the end of the world, which I think we we both have, mm-hmm. um, but he uh, Andreas Malm takes a giant shit on Jonathan Franzen, honestly. <laughs> And he's basically saying how it's a sort of privileged position and how it it doesn't really take into account the kind of moral problems, uh, the the immediate moral problems of uh, the developing world. And, you know, only a sort of wealthy upper or upper middle class white American man. who, you know, is writing the great American novels has the security to be like, it's going to be fine. The earth will be okay. It's like, yeah, but you know, there's a, there's a thing like, like climate refugees will not be okay. 
Um, and so it's not, it, it's not okay to be neutral. Um, anyway, I can't remember what, what you said that made me think of that. No, I need, I need to read that. I went and bought that book as well. <laughs> um, I just haven't started reading it yet. I also have his shorter one that he wrote about, uh, COVID, uh, which is, I feel like very, all of his stuff is kind of similar in tone. He's very polemic, which is why I like him. Um, yeah, it this how to blow up a pipeline goes really quick. It's like 180 pages, and it, it goes fast. Uh, and he's he's fucking pissed. Yeah, and his, I mean, I, I don't know if he talks about it in this book, but it seems like a big part of his thing is like, why is every why isn't everyone as mad as I am? Like, what what is going on? Um, yeah, know. he he addresses that in in the book. He he basically kind of sort of suggests that people kind of rationally know, but they can't really bring themselves to kind of viscerally believe in climate change. And so basically saying part of the problem is that even the people who say they, they, you know, know climate change is real, don't actually believe it in a, in a, in a real way, Mm. in a way that would invite action and outrage. Yeah. And, and, you know, that that's probably true. I feel like especially if you think about people who would consider themselves like centrist, like your happy Biden voters and stuff like that, I feel like they would probably fall within that sort of framework of, yes, this is an issue, but not being, you know, denial of death, right? It all goes back to Norman O'Brown. Or no, that's back. Yeah. Sorry. What'd you say? I said I, I said it was Norman O'Brown. That's Becker, right? Oh yeah, life yeah. against death is Norman O'Brown. Yeah. Uh, denial of death, Ernest Becker. I get those books kind of mixed up too. I think I think uh, uh, denial of death references life against death quite a bit. Um, but that might I don't know if we have do we have a lot else to say about. Uh, Nomadland, because I think Norman O'Brown might be a good segue into the next uh, podcast endeavor here. Yeah, so uh, next week, uh, by popular demand, which is basically like me and Will just wanting to talk about it again, uh, (laughs) we're going to do what I guess we'll just call it, like you were saying, uh, this is Will's phrase, second first reformed. (laughs) Um, first reformed reformed Uh, so we're going to revisit first reform which was the first movie we talked about right the second episode yeah um kind of the catalyst for this whole big stupid thing we're we're doing we're, we're getting back to our roots is what we're doing yeah um so we'll we'll be talking about uh first reformed again with some new insights we hope uh, I, I'm going to rewatch it. Um, try to try to notice things that maybe I hadn't noticed before and just sort of get back into feeling bad about stuff. Yeah. And, and if, if there are people listening who like, you know, I, I can't imagine there are people listening who, who aren't interested in, in kind of the, the, the context in which we talk about these things. Uh, we are we are going to try to watch Winter Light, the Bergman film that is you know, heavily influenced First Reformed, and we're also going to read the section in 
the book we just mentioned, Life Against Death by Norman O. Brown, which is pretty available, uh, the section called The Protestant Era, which has some pretty interesting psychoanalytical insights into uh, Martin Luther, who is referenced in uh, First Reformed. So that's kind of the angle uh, we're going to be coming at that from that that we did not really talk about, I don't think, in the in the first episode. Yeah. So, you know, I'm looking forward to it. Um, there, there's something I want to share real fast just because I was, I have this book sitting in front of me and it kind of makes me think of some of the stuff we were talking about, but in a slightly, slightly different way. Mm. Um, and the book is Capital is Dead by Mackenzie Wark. I don't know if you've heard of her. She's a Australian uh, scholar. No, I don't know her. And has written a couple of books or a few, well, I say a couple, I think it's more than that. Um, I think this is the newest one. Uh, but just from the introduction, just a couple of things that relate to the podcast and, and sort of to things we're talking about, although it adds another element. Um, so the, the, the whole kind of thrust of this book is that uh, capitalism, the thing is that, like, you know, we think about capitalism as being the system that can never change, right? There's a, that line of it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and what she's doing is just attacking that and saying, well, that's fine and dandy and it's sort of this mythologized thing that capitalism is eternal. But because of that, we're unable to see that maybe what we're in right now is something different. And not only is it different, but it's probably worse. Um, so, you know, cheery stuff like that, but there's a couple of sections, <laughs> um, for one reason or for one instance, uh, she's writing about class relations says, sure. There's still a landlord class that owns the land under our feet and a capitalist class that owns the factories but maybe now there's another kind of ruling class as well. One that owns neither of those things, but instead owns the vector along which information is gathered and used. Uh, and she writes elsewhere um, about desire said each such expressed desire becomes a unique vector through a layered space that can fulfill an almost infinite number of desires. So long as they all take the form of a user asking an interface to satisfy a demand with a commodity. If it does not really, or it does not really let you want to be, Sorry, I keep fucking that up. It does not really let you want or be much else. Um, and then one last part here that kind of ties it all, ties the room together. <clears throat> Talking about the instrumentalization of information. Um, I said the first time something like a transnational farmer, worker, and hacker alliance was even posited was in the 30s. It was subsumed into the global struggle against fascism and into Soviet realpolitik, and it was defeated on both sides by the Cold War. One of the consequences of defeat is the unchecked acceleration of more and more abstract forms of commodification, reaching from land to labor to information. The instrumentalization of information enables all of the earth to appear as a resource to be mobilized under the control of information, but where, where that control is based on information that treats everything, including information itself, as a commodity. Um, so it's, yeah, it's sort of like a strip mining of the soul, it seems like, like e- even yeah. information. Um but yeah, I just wanted to, to share those three sections of as far as long as we're talking about kind of the creation of these new sorts of underclasses like we see in Nomadland or if we go out and walk around our towns long enough. Yeah, I, I think you can definitely apply that. And, and I think what you see in Nomadland is people either um, – in the first stages of realizing their unwillingness to be an instrument or uh, 
a tool of the economy uh, or people uh, becoming obsolete tools in the economy. Um, and uh, one thing I did notice in the movie is there's a kind of a kind of uh, shallow reverence for nature uh, and a kind of nature as consolation prize. Um, and, and it's like, it's like when people sort of become obsolete in the labor force, they kind of fall back on this kind of trite, um, uh, like I said, a, a sort of trite reverence for nature. And it's like, oh, well, I, I can't do anything in the economy. So I'm going to rationalize my unemployability into a sort of wanderlust. Um, even though, like I said, it's not a, it's not, it's not really at the heart of things. It's a rationalization. It's a, it's a compensation or a consolation prize. Um, that, that is, is probably ultimately as meaningless as the, the, the work they were doing that they hated or should have hated. Um, anyway, all that to say, I think Nomadland is definitely um, uh, involved in that conversation about the instrumentalization of all things, including human beings. Yeah. Um, and again, like I, I think it's worth repeating. It, it's, it's a fine movie. Like I, I thought it was really emotionally effective. It's just when you start to think about, and, you know, part of it is that it's sort of empty of these kinds of messages, but you can kind of start to see them and, and weed them out a little bit. Um, it's it's kind of an imperfect picture of these things, although it's, you know, it's beautiful to look at and it'll definitely make you question some things. Um, but maybe your conclusions or the conclusions that it, the movie's trying to sort of lead you to are are not the most productive ones if we're talking about changing the sorts of systems that lead to people like Fern being in the situations that they're in. Yeah. Jensi and I watched it yesterday and we're kind of wrestling with it and, and maybe being a little bit too skeptical of it. And we, you know, we were sort of saying, well, why does she sort of sentimentalize this uh, community that was only, that only existed because of this industry. Like, why is that the basis for community? What role does a, a corporation have in forming our communities uh, and, and our families and all these things? And I realized as we were having that conversation, it's like, well, you can't really fault the film because here we are five minutes after it ended. And we're, we're talking about the role that corporations have in communities. It's like uh, at the very least, they got us talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, that's, that's kind of how people organize their lives and have been conditioned to for a long time. Right. The first question people ask you when you meet them, if they're a stranger is, what do you do for a living? Yeah. So yeah. that reminds me of the, that, uh, Raymond Carver line from his poem, uh, shiftless, that last line where he's like contrasting questions to ask a, a, a random passerby. Um, what do you want to be when you grow up versus, uh, don't I know you? Hmm. Uh, well, yeah, Nomadland. 
fine fine movie go watch it form your own opinions next week we're going to talk about first reformed a lot again yep looking forward to it me too